So today we are in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, all the way into chapter 7, verse 16. So we're going to do a big chunk. Uh, last week, Ezra was here uh, preaching, and, and he pointed out that the main goal of the Bible uh, is, is really to know God more deeply. That that is the purpose. That is the, the focus. And of course, uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that is essentially what the Bible is for. It is, it is a revelation of God. Through it, we come to know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's essential uh, that we come to know him because to the extent that we truly know God, we can have some sense of understanding about the world, about our lives, about our purpose in it. I mean, that, that is the thing we need to know. But, but there's something else uh, that we need to know. Or rather, someone else. Uh, for us to have uh, understanding and peace, we need to know God, but we also need to know ourselves. I mean, this was one of the questions that Ezra brought up, sort of the worldview questions. Who am I? Uh, what, what are human beings like? What is our nature? Uh, how would you describe us? All of, the, all of these questions are not small questions, uh, but they're also not new questions. Human beings have been kind of puzzling over these questions for thousands in thousands of years. For example, the Greek philosophers were all about these questions. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture of the uh, Temple of Apollo in Greece, Delphi, Greece. Uh, this was one of the most prominent places of worship and learning in the ancient world and inscribed still on the front of uh, part of the temple are three wise sayings. And the first one is this, know thyself. That was, that was the thing they were, look, they were trying to figure out, to know yourself, to understand ourselves. That's really what ancient philosophy was, was all about. In fact, Socrates, uh, when they uh, were displeased with what he was teaching, with all his philosophizing, uh, I mean, they were hardcore back then. So they said, look, you could stop being a philosopher or we're going to put you to death. Right? That's how serious was philosophy back then. And, and Socrates was like, I choose death. And his explanation was, the unexamined life is not worth living. That was his explanation. Look, I, I don't want to live. If I can't examine myself, if I can't somehow know myself more, then I don't want to live. Now, philosophy is you know, not quite as uh, compelling as it was back then, but we should still be asking these questions because without a clear sense of who we are, I mean, we'll never understand really the problems of our lives, the, the challenges, or what the answers might be. And I, and I mention this because our text this morning is, is all about this question trying to get a sense of who we are. What does it mean to be human? Uh, in our text, God is going to give us uh, this picture, not from our point of view, but from his point of view. And, and I'll tell you on the front end that it's not a very flattering picture. Uh, it's not like most of the pictures we see today, right, which are staged and lit and filtered and airbrushed and photoshopped. It's not, it's not like that. This is like a, a raw, uncut picture. This is like one of the photographs. Remember, uh, for those of you who used to use film, you would, you would develop your pictures and there'd be some that were just so horrible. You'd be like, oh, Aunt Mildred, that's not, I'm going to get rid of that one. She would never want to see that picture. So unflattering. That is what you're going to get today. Uh, but the purpose of it is that we might see ourselves more clearly, see our, our soul, our character, our actions and the way that God does this is quite creative. Uh, he does it by describing his own people, the Israelites, uh, using familiar imagery and metaphors. So you're going to get six similes today. It's going to guide our time. Six comparisons, some of them large, some of them small, but each one filling in a picture of what it, what it means to be human. And, I, and I'll tell you again from the front end, 
We aren't all, all of these things all the time. But if we are open to allow the word of God and the spirit of God to bring us insight, we will definitely find ourselves here. And it will help us to understand ourselves more. So, big question. What are we like? Here's the first thing. We are like a morning mist. Inconsistent in love. It's going to be really poetic, okay? They're similes. So, a morning mist. Here's the first few verses. We'll take them in chunks. Verse 4. God says uh, to his people, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So last week, uh, the three verses beginning chapter 6 were an impassioned appeal from God to his people, saying basically, return to me. I know you've been unfaithful. I know you've been sinful. It doesn't matter. Return to me. I will restore you. I will bring you life. It was an appeal. God saying, once again, I'm gracious. I'm loving. Come back to me. Now, we don't have the response of the people written down, but from what we can tell here, it wasn't very good. If God is saying, what shall I do with you? It seems pretty clear that the people did not respond as God would want. I mean, when there's a parent saying to a child, like, what am, what am I going to do with you? It means they've tried everything, and God has tried everything. He's, he's communicated his love. He's shown them his power. He's warned them of what will happen if they go in the wrong direction. And what we see over and over and over again from the Israelites is not a complete rejection of God. But what they want is God and the other idols. They want God and the sin to remain in their life. There's no passion for the Lord. No desire for holiness. And so, so God is saying, what should I do with you? You Israelites, you're not moved. There's no genuine love in your heart for me. And the question that we should ask is, why? Why, why is it that these Israelites have such trouble really genuinely loving God? And the answer has something to do with what it means to be human. Because human beings, uh, frankly, are not that great at loving other people well. Like consistently, you know? I mean, most of the time, the love we have is not very deep. We, we like to fall in love. We like to feel in love. We like to watch movies about love. We like to read books about love that are appropriate. We love to receive love. Okay, we, we, we like love. We love it. But actually showing genuine, selfless, sacrificial, committed love, that is very difficult for us. I don't, I don't even think I need to give you a lot of examples. I mean, we, we know... We know the divorce rates. We know by now what happens when we are in uh, some sort of relationship with someone, a loving relationship, and that all of a sudden there are government mandates which we both disagree with strongly and what happens to that relationship. We, we've, we've lived through that. We know what it's like to have someone who has said, I love you, I'm going to be there for you in whatever capacity, friend, and then they, they betray you or they walk away. The truth being communicated here is that our love as human beings is inconsistent, it's unreliable. It's shallow. It's like, it's like dew. Right? Dew. It's there in the morning for an hour or two, and then the heat of the day comes and it, it evaporates. Uh, and that's here. Imagine the Middle East. I don't think the dew, how long would it last? Like a few minutes? And then the heat comes out and it's gone. It's gone. And, and the point here is there's a big difference between uh, a dewy mist of love and a deep lake of love. 
And you can see this in our, in our relationships. Uh, those who have a deep lake of love, deep waters of love, uh, they can endure the heat of, of like conflict or disappointment or, or irritability, whatever it is. There's always more love there in, in the reservoir. It's a beautiful thing, but it's pretty rare. Most of us are, are a mist, uh, especially when we're young, right? We profess, we profess love with great enthusiasm, but then, then we step out into the blazing sun of life and it, it begins to dry up. All of a sudden, this person that we've, we've felt such love for, all of a sudden we're, we're irritable, we're annoyed, right? Everything they do just grates at us. We feel frustrated. And it shows up in the way that we treat them. The, the, the do, the love, has dried up pretty quickly. Why? Well, probably because that love that we felt so intensely was probably, if we're honest, more about us than it was about them probably we, we got to a point where all of a sudden we weren't receiving as much love as we thought that we were going to get. And, and all of a sudden our feelings love, they, they, they evaporated. And the same is true for our love of God. What God says here is in verse six, he says, uh, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying what a wife would say to her husband if that man is distant, emotionally unavailable, not really engaging in the relationship, but, but he brings her flowers. She might say to him, look, I don't, I don't want flowers. I don't want flowers if that's all you're going to give me, just, just gifts. What I really want is, is you. I want your heart to be in it. I want you to be pursuing me in genuine love. And that, that's the first point, that as human beings, we're not great at that. We're not great at doing that in a consistent way and our devotion to God is often shallow and, and superficial because really it's about us. And when our life doesn't go the way that we think, our faith begins to evaporate. Our affection for God begins to wane. Even though God says in verse five that he's uh, sent the prophets Right? Compelling words of judgment have been spoken to these people. Warnings have been spoken to these people. He's saying their love is still very shallow. And that's part of what it means to be human. That's, that's in our, our nature. We see it still to this day. So that's the first thing. We are inconsistent in love. Secondly, uh, we are like Adam, sinful by nature. And here we'll pick up verse seven. This is a longer, a longer section. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. And the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. So already through Hosea, we've talked a lot about covenants. Uh, we've, we've seen very clearly at the beginning few chapters that just as Hosea's wife Gomer broke their marriage covenant, so the people of God break their covenant with God. Uh, but what we've never done up to this point is really traced back the reason for that unfaithfulness, 
Like, why is it that human beings have such trouble staying committed? Why, why is there this unfaithfulness that keeps uh, showing itself in our lives and our relationships? Well, here we get the answer. The answer is because human beings are like Adam. So what does that mean? Well, Adam and Eve, when they were created, they, they entered into a covenant with God. And uh, we see part of it described in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 2.16, God says to them, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Which is kind of like the vows in a wedding ceremony. That's the parameters of the covenant. God is saying, look, if you want to be in relationship with me, then you need to be uh, faithful to my word. Uh, But instead of that, uh, Adam and Eve uh, ignored his word. And they began to listen to their own voice. Uh, They disobeyed, they sinned, they ate the forbidden fruit, and they brought upon themselves the consequences of breaking that covenant, which is death and separation from God. The key here for us, though, is that this comparison with Adam, it's, it's not just a simile. Okay, when we're compared to do, uh, we get that that likeness only goes so far, right? We're not, we're not actually do. We're, we're just like do a little bit. We're, we're temporary. Our love is temporary. That's uh, a simile. But in this case, it's not just that we behave a bit like Adam. It's not just that, you know, he, he chose to ignore God and we kind of do that, or he chose to sin, we kind of do that. What it's saying here, the deeper insight, is that the reason we do that is because our nature is like his nature. His fall into sin meant that all of us, all human beings for all time after him have, have, are fallen. We, we, we are born with a sin nature already baked into our soul so that we don't yearn for the things of God, but we rebel against him. We see this in Romans chapter five, where, where Paul's explaining this. Uh, verse 12, he says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, So death spread to all men because all men sinned. Meaning when we sin, not if, but when we do, we're demonstrating that we are actually sons and daughters of Adam and that we carry with us this very fallen nature, which uh, we sometimes call just original sin. That we aren't born neutral, that's the difference, right? Many in our our day would push back against this. Uh, Basically, our public education system believes that, in a sense, human beings, uh, kids are neutral, and we just have to you know, raise them in the right way. They can make good choices or bad choices. They're free uh, to do that. Um, I was listening to a Muslim intellectual, prominent Muslim intellectual, and he made really clear that that's, that's what Muslims believe. They don't believe in original sin. They believe that everyone has the opportunity to do good. And if you do enough good, then you will be approved by God, which, which sounds good in a sense until you try to do it. I mean, no one has ever had to teach a child to be selfish to be self-centered, to, to punch someone when they take something, that's all there from, from the get-go. We spend all of our time trying to teach them the opposite, right? Even though it feels good to punch, you shouldn't do it. I know it's hard. To, you know it's, it's not good. It's not good to steal. It's not good just to wail and cry. We're, we're trying to build a sense of, of godliness in them because it's not there at the beginning. And these verses describe what happens when that sin nature is allowed to grow and flourish, and you see all of just the, the language there, it, it, transgression, blood, murder, villainy, whoredom, idolatry, defilement, iniquity, evil, false dealings, horrible atrocities. And, and this isn't just true of human society back then. 
in the time of Hosea, we can see it today. We see it all around us. In fact, everyone can, can see these things and everyone wants to fix the problem. But what few want to consider is that the, the problem is actually us. We are the problem. It's not just our environment that shapes us. We are bent from the beginning. And to really understand what it means to be human, we have to, we have to reconcile that, that, the reality of that with our understanding of, of who we are. Because if, if it's left unchecked, uh, we can do some real damage. So number two, number two was that we are sinful by nature. Number three kind of plays off of this. It says, we are like a heated oven, smoldering with sin. Here's verse three. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They're all like a heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So in the book of 2 Kings, uh, chapter 15, which is kind of like a history of Israel and Judah, uh, there's a section there where it describes a series of assassinations, where, where the king of Israel is killed by someone close to him, and the they take the throne over and over and over again. So what scholars say is that Hosea is probably referring to that. And you see that it's, it's not just like a reference like it happened, but he actually kind of traces the, the, the motivation, like the thinking of the conspirators. He says they, they had hearts like an oven. Uh, they plotted against the king. All night they let it smolder with wine and anger until finally it blazed with fire as they carried out their treacherous Plot. So you kind of have this building up of desire for power, and then finally it, they, they do it. Now, not many of us, I hope, are going to be involved in a murderous plot like this, but, but there are still some insights here in terms of our nature as human beings that we need to understand, because, because we also often allow sinful fires to burn within us unchecked, within our hearts, within our minds. And before we know it, the people in our lives are hurt by this. It, it blazes forth in some way. And I'm talking here about, about anger that's mentioned in the text, but also uh, you could put in there a desire for control, selfishness, lust, coveting, all of these, these kinds of things. And the insightful thing here, the helpful thing, is that the fire is described as a smoldering fire, which I think is, is helpful because that, that rings true that there have been times in my life when there's been a, a fire burning, but it's smoldering. And, and a smoldering fire, you can, you can underestimate it. You, you can think that it's under control, that it's harmless. And so you don't need to attend to it, you just let it burn. But we know what the BC Forest Service tells us all the time is don't leave a fire that's smoldering at night. Uh, many forest fires in our province have begun that way. And the same is true in our lives. I remember uh, just... What came to my mind is a movie I saw a while ago called Manchester by the Sea, just a heartbreaking movie about a young father uh, who goes out in the middle of the night, he goes on a beer run, he leaves the fire burning in the fireplace and, and he comes back and the whole uh, house is, is in flames and, it, and his wife escapes but his children are all dead. And the movie is just him just racked with guilt, just he, he can't get past just the guilt of what he's done and just 
tears them apart. But the thing is, some of us, some of us don't even realize that there's fires like that burning in our, in our minds and our hearts. Some of us pretend that we have it under control. But the effects of those smoldering fires of sin are always the same unless we actually douse the flames. And the way to douse those flames is through a confession, through repentance, through a genuine humility, and then appealing to the atoning work of Christ. Unless we do that, the flames will ignite over and over and over again, and the people in our lives will suffer. So part of what it means to be human, sadly, is that we, we allow these sinful fires to burn. And what we're meant to take notice of is whether, in fact, you know, take a step back, is that happening? Are, are, there, are there fires that I've just taken for granted? It's going to be fine when it's, when it's not. That's the third thing. We often smolder with sin. Here's the fourth. We are like a half-baked cake, divided and holy. I'm not, I'm not making this up. You'll see it. These are metaphors that God has chosen for us. Okay, half-baked cake uh, starting in verse 8. Ephraim makes himself, uh, mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake, not turned, see? Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testified to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. So to be a cake not turned is to be a, a cake that's cooked only on one side, uh, which means it's kind of in between. It's kind of done and kind of not done. And we, we know that we don't want to eat this kind of a cake, a cake that's like hard on the bottom, but gooey in the middle. It's not a very appetizing cake. Uh, no one wants that. It's not a good thing. But what's not clear uh, immediately just from the metaphor is what, what does that mean? What does it mean that the people of Israel were half done or half baked? Uh, to understand, we need to look to the first part of the verse, verse eight, where it says this, Ephraim mixes himself with the people's. So Ephraim uh, is another word for Israel, for the people of God. Uh, the peoples were the other peoples around Israel, uh, the different nations, Assyria, the Canaanites, Malachites, all these different people around Assyria, and the mixing uh, meant marriage. So the reason uh, why God was saying that the Israelites were half-baked was because they were intermarrying with other cultures. And God was saying, that's not a good thing. I don't want you to do that. Now, before uh, any of your woke spider senses start tingling, just to be clear, uh, this, is, this is not uh, an injunction against interracial marriage. It's not anything against multiculturalism. It's not anything like that at all. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus makes very clear the church is to be, uh, you know, out in the world seeking the lost people of all the nations. That, that is what the church will be. That is what heaven will be like. Every tribe, every nation. This right here is about preserving a sense of holiness in the people of God. One of the key attributes of God is his holiness, his righteousness, his moral purity, and the fact that he is set apart. And holiness is also to be a mark of, of his people. Israel, at the time, was to be a beacon of God's purity and holiness in the world. But for them to do that, they needed to actually follow the commands of God, faithfully, which... Uh, is difficult if you're married to someone who is worshiping a different God. That, that was the problem. The other nations, as they married men or women from other nations, they, they brought their idols into the home. And all of a sudden, it was, very, it was very difficult to remain pure and actually worship God and God alone. This is what brought down Solomon. 
As great as his kingship was, he was ruined by the unholy influence of his foreign wives. And so God is saying, look, if you want to be my people, you can't be divided. You, you need to be a holy people. And so if you have an unholy influence that you're bringing and binding yourself with, that is not going to be a good thing. And Paul builds on this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians six fourteen, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So this is why uh, faithful Christian pastors to this day will, will not marry a believer and an unbeliever. But it's also why even if we're not getting married, or have no plans of getting uh, married, we should be aware of the ungodly influences in our lives. See, part of the problem for the Israelites is that they were not very aware of the effects these ungodly influences were having on them. If you look at verse 9, he says, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The kind of sub-metaphor is, is like a man who's getting older, but he doesn't want to admit it. He's like, the, the gray hairs are sprinkling on there, but he doesn't know, I'm, I'm not that old. I'm not that. There's a sense of self-delusion, and that's what was happening with the people of God. And the point that he's making is that that actually is what marks us as human beings. That we don't naturally gravitate towards what is pure and holy because our sin nature has us bent and corrupt and we tend to invite in sinful influences and we assume that it's not gonna, they're not going to corrupt us. So what it, what it, the result is that a lot of us are half-baked in our faith and we can't even really see it. In fact, if, if we were to take a step back and just think through the influences in our lives, I think we'd have to admit that many of them are not holy influences. That we're, we're, we have the back door open in a sense, or windows open in our lives to things that are not drawing us nearer to God. In fact, they're making it harder for us to truly worship the Lord. And what God is saying is that that is what marks us as human beings in our sin. We're divided, we're unholy, and we are not to be that way. Okay, fifth thing. We are like a senseless bird heading in the wrong direction. This one is my favorite metaphor. Okay, verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, says God, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Now, from what I understand, there are a lot of birds that have a very good sense of direction. There are homing pigeons, right? There are carrier pigeons. Falcons always seem to know where they're going. Harry Potter's owl always shows up exactly where he should be. So there are a lot of birds that know where they're going. But these birds are not like that. These doves, uh, they are not very bright. In fact, their, their sense of direction is all wrong. They remind me of uh, the times, been a few times we've had a bird fly in the house. Has that happened to you? And I don't know what it is with those birds. They must be the dumb ones because when they fly in, they can't get out. You open up all the doors, you open up all the windows, you like get a tennis racket, get, get out. And they're fluttering in the skylight, hitting the one window that's closed. You're like, what's wrong with you? Just get out of my house. This, this is what's happening. And what he's saying is, look, Israel was being like that, just like that. Because they were also trapped. 
that there was um, the empire of Assyria was on their doorstep, ready to take them out in a moment's notice. And what do they do? They keep flying in the wrong direction. They go to Egypt is mentioned. And they did. They went and tried to make an alliance that Egypt would help them. That didn't work out. Sometimes they would actually go to Assyria and try to pay them off. Just try to give them protection money. That didn't work out. All the time, they were missing the real answer because they were missing the real problem. Instead of going to all these other sources of help, they should have recognized the reason we're in this situation is we have turned our backs on God. And that if we would actually humble ourselves and turn back to him, we would have the help that we need. And that misdirection is is another mark of what it means to be human. When things fall apart in our lives, many of us spring into action. I mean, we got lots of things that we can do, lots of things to make things better, right? We eat better. We exercise more. We manage our time better. We get a massage. We take a course. We, we do lots of things to make things better. Those are, those are good things. Don't get me wrong. Hundreds of ways to make our lives better to some degree, but they all miss the fundamental problem or issue, which is our relationship with the Lord. That is the thing which will either bring hardship and turmoil into our life and a lack of peace or whether we will actually get the help that we need. Just because there's a lot of activity in our lives does not mean that we are headed in the right direction. As human beings, we have an incredible capacity to miss the main issue, right? Especially when it means humbling ourselves, admitting our, our wrongs, our failings, coming to the Lord in repentance or to the people in our lives. We don't like doing that. And so very often we will look to all sorts of other things rather than actually get on our knees and, and, and just repent. Think, think of the Israelites in that situation. Think of for all the effort they put in to try to make things better. Imagine the difference that would have come if they simply humbled themselves before the Lord. If they did what he said at the beginning of this chapter, come, return to me. If they had done that, Assyria, massive Assyria, wouldn't have stood a chance. The power of God once more would have been unleashed. They would have, they would have received all of the protection and care and help that they need. We should, we should be mindful of that as we flutter about trying to make life better. Have we stopped? Have we actually asked the Lord to search our heart to see whether our relationship with him is, is true? And by true, I mean right in Christ through the repentance, forgiveness that comes through him. So that was number five. Okay, we always tend to be heading in the wrong direction. Number six, last one. Uh, We are like a treacherous bow, betraying our master. Here's uh, verses 14 to 16. God says, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, the image here uh, isn't just of a bow, like a bow and arrow, that doesn't shoot straight, right? It's not just that it's kind of curved. This bow somehow shoots backwards and hits the person who is using it, okay? Which is not a bow that you would want to use, right? You would, you would die. That's not good. So, God's saying it's a treacherous bow, Uh, And and if you see verse 15, he kind of describes what he means. He says, although I trained and strengthened their arms, he's talking about his people, yet they devise evil against me. 
So the idea here is that is, the Israelites were taking all of the blessings, all of the gifts that God had given them, and they were using it against him. They were using it to sin against him. And we saw this actually described earlier in Hosea chapter 2, verse 8. God says, And she, that's Israel, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So God was blessing his people with all of these things. And they were taking it, smiling and going and worshiping another God, sinning against God, injuring their relationship with, with the Lord. And the point that's being made here is that this, this is in our nature as human beings. This is what we tend to do. We take all the good things that God has given us and on our own, in our sin, we, we use those things to glorify so many other things in this world, including ourselves, rather than honoring the Lord. And if you just stop for a moment and, and think... Which, which is a difficult thing to do because of what might come to our mind. But just think, just think about what we have done with the body that God has given us. Think about what we've done with the mind that God has given us. Think about all the gifts he's given us, all the skills and abilities, all the wealth. All of these things designed, we're told explicitly in Scripture, designed for the glory of God. Designed for the, for the building up of the church. Designed to magnify God and all he's done for us. And yet we, we use them to glorify ourselves and so many other lesser things. This is essentially what it means to be human. That, that we turn our backs on our creator. We say thank you very much and we, we go in our own direction. So this is what human beings are like. Right? Not, not a pretty picture. Six comparisons, six descriptions, all of them giving a very, a very stark, unflattering uh, image of what it means to be human. And I think if we had to kind of condense it, distill it into one word, I think probably the best word would be the word hopeless. What are human beings like? We're hopeless. We're kind of hopeless. We're, we're lost. We're corrupt. We're harmful towards others. We're deluded. Which is why, I mean, it makes sense, which is why if you think about us as human beings, I mean, for all of the progress that we've made over thousands of years, we're still basically dealing with the same problems, aren't we? Like if you read any part, any ancient works about human civilization, you see the same problems. You see all the same things coming up, even though we've progressed so much. And it's why no matter how many policies or programs or laws are written, we, we still see all of these horrible things cropping up in our culture, in our lives. And it's why some of us have come here this morning feeling very, very low. Because, because maybe we've begun to see some of this hopelessness in ourselves. God has brought this sense of clarity or maybe we just can't help but see it. That, that no matter how hard we try, things never seem to hold together. We keep hurting the people around us. We, things keep falling apart. We, we keep dishonoring God. We keep ending up in dark places that we swore we'd never go to again, and yet here we are. And this is, this is what God is saying. Yes, this is who we are as human beings. This is meant to be an accurate, high-res picture so that we'd see ourselves clearly. But hear me, not for the purpose of discouraging us. That's sometimes the mistake that we make. And sometimes the reason that that we don't look at passages like this because you're like, man, I already feel low. I don't really need you to show, tell me all the ways that I'm horrible. I get it. Fair enough. But, but do we get it and then move towards the hope that God is bringing? 
Because even in this text, with all of these details, all these comparisons, there's hope woven into most of the, of the sections. The hopefulness of God is here. What God was saying to his people is the same thing he's been saying all along, that it doesn't have to be this way. It is this way without me, but it doesn't have to be this way for the people of Israel or for us. So I want to show you just some of the, the glimmers of light that come through even a dark passage like this. Uh, I've put sort of the, just the little clips of the verses. Verse 5 of chapter 6, God says, My judgment goes forth as light. And that's true, that the judgment of God, though, though it is a heavy, it brings a sense of clarity. There's light in it. That, that we might actually see ourselves, that we might feel the judgment, the condemnation of us and our sin and see it clearly and we want to turn to the light as it shines. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 6, God says, when I restore the fortunes of my people and 7-1, when I would heal Israel, notice, not if, but when. God isn't saying if, maybe, there's uncertainty of whether I will deal with this. He's saying, I want, when I restore Israel, when I restore the fortunes of my people. Verse 12, God says, I will discipline them, which we've seen a few weeks ago. Discipline means love. It means he cares about his people. He wants to correct them. He wants to bring us, his people, onto the right path. And then again, verse 13, I would redeem them. And verse 14, I think, is most helpful. Verse 14, God says, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. Meaning, there's a difference there's a difference between just wailing because our life is falling apart and being genuinely broken in our sin. And God is saying part of the problem with his people here is that there was a lot of wailing. There was a lot of feeling of, of hopelessness, but it wasn't the right kind because they were just upset because life wasn't going well. All human beings feel that way. Whether you're inside the church, whether you know God or not, all of us come to a place we feel upset, broken, maybe even because we know we're part of the problem. That's a different thing than actually turning to him in faith. And saying, I, I see what I've done, but I see the hope that you bring. This, this is what God wants us to understand. He wants us to be so, so clear about our hopelessness so that we wouldn't think what we always think, which is, look, I can figure it out. Right? I just, it's not going great, but look, the weekend's coming, vacation's coming, retirement's coming, something is, is always coming. I can just cobble together some sort of life and make it through and everything will be all right. God's saying, I want so much more for you than that. There's, there's actual hope, genuine hope, even on the darkest days, if, if we shift our gaze from ourselves to him. If we see clearly that his son, Jesus, came to bring us genuine hope, and he did it by stepping into our hopeless reality and bringing a hope from within, because he, he redeemed it through the cross. He endured all the things that we endured, all the temptations, was all the things we couldn't be, holy, perfect, righteous, and then went to the cross, took on the consequences of everything that we deserve, death, separation from God, and then was resurrected, showing everyone, look, there is actually hope beyond this life. And look at what Paul says in Romans 5. Remember, he said, look, we're like Adam, but that's not the end of the story. The full circle is this in 17. For if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So that's Adam, right? If that happened, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, yes, in your humanity, you were like Adam, but in your faith, you are no longer like Adam. You are like Jesus. 
That's the seventh comparison, which isn't in our text explicitly, but the whole narrative of scripture and hope of scripture leads to us understanding we, we in our faith are like Jesus. We are holy. We are righteous. We are children of God, not because of us. That's the whole point of the first six similes. Look, that's you by yourself, but God is saying with, with Christ, everything changes. The hope that we can have is knowing that the nature that plagues us, like the, the reality of ourselves, the things keep falling apart, the fires keep burning, all of that, it can actually be changed. That we don't have to keep wrestling with ourselves. And it comes by the grace and the mercy of God. And what we see in the New Testament is this promise of God, you will be like Jesus. You will be like him. That's my promise to you, he says. Through all the trials, through all the tribulations, all the... All the difficult things I'm shaping and honing you to be more and more like Jesus till the moment you step into the glories of heaven and are united with him fully and completely. So my hope for us this morning, what I think God is saying to us is we do need to know ourselves, but that's, that's not the end game. We know ourselves that we see the real issue, but then we turn and know Christ and in him we have hope. Let me pray that for us as we close. Lord Jesus, it's an amazing thing to think that you stepped into our hopeless reality as a human being, that you poured yourself, all of your divine nature into this, into this, into this shell. You were genuinely human. You lived, you endured all the temptations. And yet amazingly, you, you didn't succumb to any of them. That Jesus, you were able to live in perfect love. You loved people perfectly. You were perfectly kind and gentle and patient and that was because you never lost sight of your father and the truth is Jesus that we, there are some days we can barely see ourselves much less you and so I, I pray for us please I pray for everyone here especially for those of us that did walk in feeling very very low I, I pray that we would walk out being lifted up recognizing that we have everything we need not in ourselves but in you that actually in spite of ourselves, you've, you've entered in, your spirit has transformed us, given us a new nature, one that is no longer bent and crooked, but one that actually yearns for the things of God. And so I, play, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, you would encourage us in this. For those of us that are having difficulty seeing it, please bring clarity, please bring conviction. But once we get to that point, would you flood us with the grace and mercy that comes through the cross? And may we have an even clearer picture of, of the vision you have for us, which is to be complete and perfect, which is to be united with you in love. And I pray that um, as that happens in our lives, we would glorify you all the more, be a blessing to others, and our joy would grow. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.